Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This table was first instituted by the Lord Jesus Christ the night before he went to the cross. At that time, he was observing the Passover meal with his disciples. And the Passover meal was a time when uh, the Jews were to look back to the Exodus event to remember how God had redeemed them as a nation from slavery in Egypt. It was also designed to look forward to the ultimate redemption that would be provided by the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the earth. The central focal point of the Passover meal was the Passover lamb that was to be without spot or blemish. And it was that lamb that was a depiction of the future Redeemer who would be without spot or blemish, who would be sinless. And so just as the Passover meal looked back as a memorial, as a form of remembrance, and also looked forward, So the Lord's table was to look back and to look forward. It looks back to what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Two elements from the Passover meal were given new significance, the unleavened bread and the the cup. And the unleavened bread was to represent the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, in other words, his humanity as a sinless Savior. Leaven in the scripture is used as a symbol of sin because as you introduce leaven into uh, flour, into other substances, it easily permeates everything just as sin does. And yet the Lord was without sin. He was born with, of a virgin without the inherited sin nature from Adam, uh, without imputed sin, and he lived his life with no personal sin so that he was qualified to go to the cross. He was that spotless lamb of God, as we just sang in the hymn. Then the cup, the cup represented the sacrifice that would take place on the cross. The deep red color of the wine was a reminder of the color of blood, the shedding of blood that would take place upon the cross. That was a depiction of the spiritual sacrifice that spiritual transaction that was taking place on the cross when the Lord Jesus Christ died as our substitute in our place that uh, the scripture says, he who knew no sin became sin for us that the righteousness of God might be found in us. And so it is in those two elements that we have a memorial to focus, to look back upon what the Lord did on the cross. But they also have a future focus because it is the uh, it is that death on the cross where the Lord said with the in reference to the cup that this is the new covenant of my blood which has been given as a substitute for you and the new covenant as we have studied is a covenant between God and the house of Judah and the house of Israel it is foundationally a Jewish covenant that comes into effect at the time the Lord Jesus Christ returns and establishes uh, his kingdom in Israel. And he also said when he observed the Lord's table, when he took the cup, that he would not drink of the uh, fruit of the vine until he comes in his kingdom. And so the Lord's table not only looks back to what the Lord has done for us, but it also anticipates the fulfillment 
of all of his promises and covenants when he will come again and establish his kingdom. The Lord's table is not an option for believers. It is uh, something that we are all to observe, although the frequency is left up to us. All the Lord said was as often as you do this, whether it's weekly, monthly, quarterly, annually, uh, the focus was that it was to be a regular pattern within the life of the church-age believer. And the reason for that is because it brings us to that point on a regular basis where we have to stop, set aside all the distractions of, of daily living, all of the worries, all the concerns, everything that easily takes our attention away from, from the Lord and from the fact that we have been saved for the purpose of growing to spiritual maturity to serve him. And at this time, it focuses our attention on the fact that 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 we all have this one thing in common, no matter what your background, no matter what your education or intelligence or how old or how young you are, we all have this one thing in common. As the Scripture says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but we have our salvation all the same way, and that is simply by faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Lord's table is for anyone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've never trusted in Christ as your Savior, then the Lord's table just is empty ritual. But if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then it has rich meaning for each of us because it reminds us of who Jesus Christ is and what he did. And as we partake of the elements, as we eat the bread and drink the cup, that is a depiction of faith. As we accept something into our, into our being, that is a picture of faith when we are trusting, accepting, or receiving Jesus Christ as our Savior. So it is a reminder for us of our salvation. We'll uh, begin with a prayer, an opportunity for, to give thanks to the Lord for what he has uh, provided uh, for us, and then we will... Uh, observe the Lord's table. So let's bow our heads together and I'll return thanks for the bread. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for this reminder that we have in the Lord's table. We're thankful that you have provided this for us. We're thankful that it gives us the opportunity to look back and be reminded of who the Lord Jesus Christ was and that his entering into humanity, taking on humanity, uh, was a part of your plan from eternity past and that even though he is eternal in his deity, he entered into time and was born uh, of a virgin that he would be true humanity and therefore would be able to die as our substitute and that he lived a sinless life so that he would be qualified to go to the cross. And so, Father, as we partake of the bread, we focus upon who the Lord Jesus Christ uh, is as our Savior, and we thank you for him in Christ's name. Amen. It is our custom to retain the bread until all have been served. Our Lord then took the bread in the right normal procedure of the Passover meal, and he broke it and passed it out to his disciples. 
And he said, this is my body, which is given as a substitute for you. Take and eat. Father, we are also thankful for the cup. We're thankful for what it represents in terms of the spiritual substitutionary death of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. We're during those three hours of darkness that in your justice you imputed to him the sins of all mankind, the sins of all, all of history, and that during that time, as he hung there between heaven and earth, that he paid that penalty for us so that sin is no longer the issue, but the issue now is what we think about the Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful for his death. We're thankful for the fact that it was complete, as indicated by him saying it is finished. And we are thankful that there is nothing that we can do to add to it, for it has all been taken care of. It is paid in full. Father, we thank you for this cup and what it represents in Christ's name. Amen. It is our custom to retain the cup until all all have been served. Our Lord then took the third cup in the course of the meal, which was called the cup of redemption, and he said, This is the new covenant of my blood which is shed for you as often as you drink this. Do so in remembrance of me. At the conclusion of the meal, before the disciples went out, they sang a hymn from the Hallel Psalms. We usually sing hymn number uh, 185, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, number 185. We'll sing the third verse softly and crescendo on the fourth. Please stand. Giving for the church-age believer is an, also an act of worship. It is our opportunity to respond to God's grace through our support, our financial support of the local church as well as missions. Giving is to be motivated by each individual's own volition in terms of their response to God, their appreciation for his grace, and their understanding of God's plan and purpose during the uh, church age. Scripture says, as every man purposeth purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a generous, grace-oriented giver. As the men come forward to take up the offering, let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, we're thankful in so many ways for all the things that you have done for us and provided for us and for the ways in which you have given us the uh, jobs we have, the homes we have, the cars we have, all of the details of life come from you. And, Father, above that we have, we know that you have given us everything we need for our spiritual life. So, Father, these gifts are given not in order to bargain with you or somehow to get more grace from you, but these gifts are given as a response to all that you have already given us and our understanding of your plan and purpose in this church age for the teaching of your word through the local church as well as through missions. And so we give these gifts for your honor and glory. In Christ's name, amen.
This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's go to the Lord and seek his guidance on our study. Father, thank you for your word. We're thankful that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And as the psalmist said, it is in your light that we see light. And so it is only as we come on a regular basis to understand, to study your word, and to let it uh, filter into our soul and into our mentality to change the way we think, to come to understand how to look at life the way you have created it, and to look at the issues of life through the lens of your word that we come to understand things as they truly are. We live consistent with reality and not divorced from reality. Now, Father, we pray as we study today that we would be open to the teaching of the word as God the Holy Spirit makes these truths clear to us and also uh, shows to us the areas which we need to have application where we need to exchange the thinking of the world for the thinking of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in 1 Kings chapter 14. 1 Kings chapter 14. Last week I looked at the deterioration and decline and ultimate defeat of the kings uh, in the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, covered in these same chapters, these same passages. And this morning we will look at what took place during that same time period in the uh, kings in the southern kingdom. Now, as we look at this passage, uh, both in terms of what happens in the north and in what happens in the south, there's one thing that uh, stands out throughout this passage that is really incorporated into a verse in the New Testament, and, and it is actually taken from an Old Testament passage. In James chapter 4, verse 6, we read, But he, that is God, gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, or we might translate that a little stronger, God is opposed to the arrogant, but he gives grace to the humble. The contrast is between uh, the humble and the arrogant and how God and God's response to them. This is an example or application of the principle seen in Proverbs 29:23, that a man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. Now, the one who is humble is the one who is oriented to the authority of God. That's what humility means. Humility isn't some, somebody who just has a low view of themselves or low self-esteem or, or walks around where they can always be uh, used and abused by people around them. But the purple, person who is humble 
is the person who recognizes their role in God's plan and the authority of God. The classic passage, the key passage to understand humility is in Philippians chapter 2, where the uh, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, it says that he humbled himself by obedience to the point of death. That's what humility is. It is obeying God's word, obeying God's will, no matter what it may involve, no matter what it may, may cost. But the contrast to humility is pride or arrogance. And what we see throughout the scripture is that God is truly at war with those who are arrogant and bringing them, uh, bringing them under his judgment. That is because arrogance was the first sin that entered into the universe. It was the sin of Lucifer, the highest of all the angels that God had created. And as Lucifer looked upon himself and saw all that God had given him, he wanted to take credit for it himself, and he became elevated in his own eyes, and he wanted to have all of the honor and glory that went to God for himself. And this was the seed of arrogance that began in his thinking that led eventually to his rebellion against God and to the entrance of sin into the universe. So the root sin of all other sins is a sin of arrogance. I've heard more than one person uh, comment that when they need to make sure they're in fellowship, they'll just confess arrogance because they know that if they haven't been out of fellowship in the last uh, uh, few minutes or hours, then um, they can't remember exactly what they've done. They're sure they've been arrogant. And that's, there, there's a lot of truth to that because that is where, uh, that is the root sin and that is a problem that easily uh, besets every one of us. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 through 5, Paul warns Timothy of the trends that will come during the last days. Now, this last days in this passage isn't talking about the end times. If we, as we've studied this phrase before, there are the last days in relation to God's plan for Israel, and then there are the last days in relationship to, uh, to the church age. And these are the last days that refer to the church age. In fact, uh, writer of Hebrews says, in these last days. So, uh, in some sense, all of the church age comes under this particular category, and so these are trends that we will see around us. And it goes on to describe this, that in these last days, uh, perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, that's our word arrogant there, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful or ungrateful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then the conclusion is the thing I want to focus on, having or holding on to a form of godliness but denying its power. That is what we see so often in our own lives, in the lives of many, many believers, and in the lives of many down through history, especially in the Old Testament and the period in which we are examining in the times of the later kings of Judah and of Israel. They had a facade of spiritual observance, but it only went so far. Underneath, there was still a lot of compromise. There was a lot of acceptance of sin, rationalization, justification of sin. We see this drumbeat through many of the kings in the especially in the south, but also in the north, 
that that they uh, walked in the path of their father so and so, and they uh, were obedient to the Lord, but the high places were still in existence. They, the Israelites or the Judahites were still sacrificing to the idols at the high places. So there is a a facade of observance at the temple. There is a partial obedience. But the weakness in the culture in the South was that it only went so far. There was a compromise with the pagan Canaanite thinking of the time. And so in arrogance, they only went so far in obedience to God, and it wasn't uh, far enough. And God had warned of this in the uh, chapters that we've studied before, in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy uh, uh, 28, that God would bring discipline. He would bring judgment upon the nation. If they were not fully and totally obedient to him, then he would bring judgment upon them. And there were various uh, stages of that judgment. And in one of those stages, in Leviticus 26, uh, verse 19, we read, I will break the pride of your power. I will make your heaven like iron and your earth like bronze. That was one particular stage, second stage of divine discipline. But the point is that first phrase, God is going to break the pride of our power. That's the same thought that we find in James 4, that God resists or God is opposed to the proud. In Proverbs 29, that a man's pride will bring him low. It is that arrogance, that attitude of self-sufficiency, Instead of God's sufficiency, it is self-reliance instead of God-dependence. And it follows after the original sin of Lucifer, and it will always lead to our destruction. And so in these chapters that I want to look at this morning, 1 Kings chapter 14 through 16, basically, we'll look at uh, several kings in the south in Judah. What I want you to pay attention to is how each of these kings has a measure of obedience, a, a form of obedience, where th- but they don't go all the way. They still compromise with the uh, pagan systems of thought that surround them. The first king that we take a look at is Amaziah. The scriptures that cover uh, Amaziah's reign are found in 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 1 through 20. And more detail is given in Second Chronicles chapter 25, verses 1 through 28. Now, the difference between Kings and Chronicles is that the book of Kings was written, and it gives the history of both the kings in the north and the kings in the south. And it is written really to show the outworking of what God had promised and prophesied back in Deuteronomy 28, uh, and in Leviticus 26, the blessings and the cursings and showing how when the nation is obedient to God and when they humble themselves under the mighty hand of God, God gives them grace and they are prosperous. But when they are disobedient, then God is also faithful to, the, to his covenant and he is going to bring judgment upon the nation. And so the real focal point of this is that God is faithful to who he is. He's faithful to his character. He is going to be gracious to those who are obedient, and he is going to bring judgment into the life of those that are disobedient, not because he is mean and not because God wants to grind us down, but he wants to break that arrogance, that pride, so that we will 
humble ourselves uh, under his authority. And so we look at this first king, Amaziah. Amaziah is the ninth king of Judah, the southern kingdom. His dates were 796 to 767 uh, B.C., and at age uh, 25, he succeeded his father, uh, King Joash. And Joash, if you remember, was a good king initially. He had uh, been born and, and rescued by uh, his, his, uh, one of the wives of the, of the king, and when uh, Athaliah took over, and when Athaliah was seeking to kill all of the children of, uh, of the, the king, all the royal line, Joash was protected, uh, and he was, grew up under Jehoiada, the high priest, and was crowned king when he was seven years of age. At that time, there was truly a change or revival in the nation Israel. They entered into a, a re, they renewed the covenant with God. They destroyed the temple to Baal. They executed the high priest, and he started off well. But after Jehoiada died, died about 24 years into his reign, then uh, Joash came under the influence of those who were rebellious towards God, and everything deteriorated during the second part uh, the last 15 years or so of his reign. Now, here's a chart that we've looked at, a lot of names up there, a lot of details, and all of a sudden everybody looks at that, and, whoa, that's a lot to... to uh, to think through, we've walked our way through that chart the last several weeks for those who haven't been here in the past. Last time we focused on this part of it, the northern kingdom, and we looked at those kings that are, uh, that are in shadow there, starting with uh, Jeroboam II, uh, who had a very long reign, prosperous reign, and it was a time of financial prosperity, military expansion, it was the last period of where God was being gracious to Israel, where he removed a lot of the discipline to give them that opportunity to turn back to him in obedience. And they're just like we are, that when things are bad, there's more of a tendency to depend upon God. But then when God lightens up and gives us uh, prosperity, uh, we have a tendency to think, well, I guess things weren't so bad. God's not going to really discipline me. And so we sink even further into our disobedience. It's as if God is making us prosperous that one last time simply to confirm us in our disobedience and our arrogance. And then that was followed by a period of tremendous, uh, uh, pr- pr- tremendous chaos uh, politically in the life of the nation. You had these short reigns, one as short as a month, as one king after another is assassinated. Five were assassinated and they led the nation further and further into rebellion against God and into idolatry. This morning, what I want to do is focus on those these four kings that I have shaded in green at the bottom uh, of the chart there, Amaziah, Azariah, Jotham, and Ahaz, names that sound similar, some names that uh, seem similar to names that are in the north, but uh, it just takes a little time to think through, and I'll have that chart up there, so it will help you as we think through them. But we're just going to go through the order there, Amaziah, Azariah, Jotham, and then Ahaz. Amaziah, Azariah, and Jotham are ba- basically have the same evaluation. They don't fully obey the Lord, but they do follow in the footsteps of uh, Joash, and they are mostly obedient but not fully obedient. And then Ahaz follows after the gods in the north, and he leads the nation into uh, not only gross 
uh, idolatry and depravity and perversion. But because of that, God is going to bring military discipline uh, against the southern kingdom with the rise of, of the Assyrian Empire. And by the time we get to the end of uh, the time of Ahaz, this, the northern kingdom, you'll see by his dates that it overlaps with the defeat of the, of the uh, northern kingdom uh, of Israel, which went out under discipline in 722 as they were uh, defeated and wiped out by the Assyrians. Um, and Ahaz in the, in the south, the southern kingdom is under the dominion of the Assyrian Empire, and they've been re- reduced to simply being a vassal state, paying tremendous amount of tax money to pay the tribute uh, to, the, to the Assyrians. So they basically become a slave state to the Assyrian, uh, Assyrian Empire. But that precedes one of the greatest periods of spiritual revival, which we'll get to next time, spiritual renewal under Hezekiah. Uh, and a tremendous miracle of grace that occurs with Hezekiah. So we'll just uh, begin with uh, Amaziah, looking at a few things there. The evaluation for for uh, Amaziah is given in Second Kings 14, verses 3 and 4. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, yet not like his father David. See, it's not to the same extent of the greatest most spiritual of all the kings of, of Israel, David. He did everything as his father Joash had done. And then Second Chronicles, though, uh, states almost the same thing, but says it in a slightly different way that gives us a little clear picture. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but not with a loyal heart. As uh, the New King James translates it, the New American Standard translates it, not with a whole heart, which is probably a little better translation because the word that is used there in the Hebrew is shalom, where we get our word, where we get the word shalom as a cognate. It means that which is perfect, whole, or full. So he is, he's got a partial obedience to God. I'll obey you, Lord, only so far. But he's not going to go all of the way. Perhaps he was afraid that if he uh, fully carried out the uh, the plan to destroy all of the uh, false uh, places of worship and idols, that there might be a revolt. Remember, his his father Joash uh, had uh, had done that initially in his reign, but he compromised in the last part of his his reign. And when he did, uh, he, things were so miserable that he had been assassinated. So perhaps uh, part of what we learn about. Um, uh, Amaziah is that that he only has a partial this partial obedience. Perhaps he was fearful of also being being assassinated. Now in Second Kings four uh, four we read, let's see, I'll put it there. However, the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. And so notice, it is the people who still sacrificed and burned on the incense on the high places. So the people in the southern kingdom are still exhibiting their negative volition towards God. They don't want to be obedient. They're looking for aid and sustenance from something other than God. Whether we do the same thing, whether we're looking to money, whether we're looking to friends, whether we're looking to uh, careers or jobs or whatever it might be that we think gives us a greater sense of meaning, a greater sense of happiness or hope, uh, that's the same thing. It is another form of idolatry. 
Uh, even the Apostle Paul in, in Colossians chapter 3 states that, that greed is uh, another form of idolatry. So don't think of idolatry simply as the worship of sticks and bricks or stones or metal uh, figures. Idolatry is also the abstract worship of things in our, in our mind when we put when we look to something other than God to be the source of meaning and happiness, uh, meaning and happiness in life. Now, when we read in those passages that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, this takes us back to understand that we have to go back to Deuteronomy again. Deuteronomy was really the, the framework for understanding uh, what happens during this period of history. And in Deuteronomy 6, 17 and 18, Moses commanded the Israelites, you should diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he commanded you. So the focus is on obedience. Diligently keep the commandments of the Lord. But he says, you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with you. So doing what is right in the sight of the Lord is equated to diligently keeping the commandments of God. So when we read that uh, Amaziah did what was right in the sight of the Lord, that is saying that he was keeping the commandments of the Lord, but it was only to a point. We have the exception given then in verse 4. He rationalized, he justified sin, and he justified uh, incomplete obedience to the Lord. We're all masters of that. I think from the time we're just little infants and we start trying to figure out how to manipulate our parents, uh, we take those same skills that we learn to, to, uh, uh, to manipulate our parents and we think we can just convert those over uh, to manipulating God and that we can uh, justify uh, our sin, and we can rationalize our sin, especially those sins that really make us feel good and make us feel comfortable. And it's real easy for us to say, well, you know, that's, that, God really doesn't think that's so bad. And we come up with one excuse, one justification after another in order to not really deal with that sin, not to focus on it. But remember, uh, the Christian life is not about uh, is not about some sort of legalistic approach to sin in order to be saved or in order to get God's grace. But it is sin that wipes out our soul. It is sin that corrupts us. It is sin that destroys and that is the enemy of our spiritual life. And so that if we are not putting into practice or application the mandates of Scripture which deal with commands such as in Romans 6 to put to death the deeds of the flesh, in other words, to put to death the sin uh, in our life, then what happens is we constantly fight the same battles over and over again, and it has a destructive and a corrupting influence upon our thinking. And if we become complacent and compromise with justifications and rationalizations, then eventually that sin finds a, fo a foothold in our thinking. We don't even think about it anymore. And then maybe 5, 10, 15 years down the road, it begins to, as it were, uh, become exploited uh, within our thinking. And the next thing you know, that becomes the source of defeat uh, in our life. As an illustration of this, the scripture uses the um, the 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 
conquest of the land, the conquest of the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When they came into the land under Joseph, they were to take all of the land. And that was a picture, is a picture of spiritual warfare. That was uh, their version of spiritual warfare. They were to take all the land because the land was dominated by the Canaanites. And it was dominated by pagan thought and perversion and uh, all of this idolatry and even uh, human and infant sacrifices. All of this was going on and was normative, and God was bringing judgment on this. So if we look at this, at the conquest, we can see an important comparison with our own lives. First of all, we have to recognize the land, taking a look at the land uh, itself, that that's equivalent to our soul. So that's the point of analogy. And from the time that uh, this land had been under under the control of the uh, of the Canaanites, that their thinking, their religious thinking, their rebellion against God, all of their perversions, completely dominated and controlled everything uh, within their culture. In the same way, we are born. As sinners, we are born uh, totally depraved is the theological term. It doesn't mean that we're as bad as we can be. It means that every aspect of our being, every aspect of our soul, the totality of our person has been corrupted by sin. We have a sin nature, and prior to salvation, the sin nature dominates, and we can't do anything that isn't the production of that sin nature. Now, the sin nature produces a certain measure of morality. It also uh, produces a certain measure of sin or disobedience to God, but it cannot produce anything that has any real eternal spiritual value that measures up to the righteousness of God. And so in that comparison, we have a territory that lies between our ears that is completely under the control of paganism, just as the land was completely under the control of the paganism of the Canaanites. The Israelites were mandated by God to have an uncompromising mentality to defeat all of the Canaanites. They were to go in and they were to kill every man, woman, and child. That sounds very harsh to us, and it was hard for them. It wasn't something that they really wanted to do. In some cases, they were to kill all of the animals. They were not to benefit from the corruption of the Canaanite culture. And so they were to completely destroy everything related to that pagan culture so that it would not come back and influence them uh, later on. So they were to have this uncompromising mentality, and the mission was to seek and destroy everything. In the same way, the believer is given that same mission in terms of the thinking that goes on in the territory between our ears. We are to take every thought captive for Christ. It is an uncompromising mission. We are to uh, wipe out everything in our thinking that has anything to do with the world system. We are to, as Paul says in Romans 12:2, we are to uh, be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We're not to be conformed to the thinking of the world, but we have to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That occurs by learning the word. So we know this is a mission we'll never fully achieve, we'll never, uh, we'll never be perfect, we'll never destroy, eradicate the sin nature, but 
that's our mission. We have to have a single-mindedness to wipe that out. Now, the third thing we need to note is that in terms of the comparison, the Israelites began well. They began well at Jericho. They, uh, un- they were dependent upon God. They killed every man, woman, child in Jericho, and then they moved on to the next place. But there was some disobedience that occurred at Jericho. There was, uh, uh, there was a man, Achan, who disobeyed God, and he took some of the gold and silver for himself and hid it under his tent, and that brought sin into the camp of Israel. So when they went to the next town to attack it at Ai, what happened was that, that they lost the battle and, and 7,000 Israelites died. Why? Because sin hindered their ability to do what God wanted them to do, so they had to come back, discover the sin, and in that they had to sanctify themselves again. We would say that what we have to do is recognize the sin in our life, confess it, and we are restored to fellowship. It's that same pattern. And so once they dealt with the sin of Achan, his sin was identified, and then they were able to go forward and they defeated uh, Ai and captured it. And then they went to the major cities in the north, major cities in the south, and they captured those. But then they began to compromise. It's not fun going out and killing every man, woman, and child. It is not emotionally appealing. So they compromised, and they began to back off. And, and, and as you read through the accounts in the first chapter of the book of Judges, what happens eventually is they get to a point where they just they don't even go to battle against the Canaanites anymore. That's just like the believer decides, you know, I've got these really comfortable sins in my life, and I'm just not going to deal with it. I'm comfortable with it. I, it. It makes life work at times. makes me happy. I enjoy it. Sin's really fun sometimes. And I'm just not going to deal with it. And yet if, what happens is that that sin comes back to haunt them later on as it grabs a strategic toehold in our souls and then begins to expand. That's what happened in the land, that those Canaanites that were left alive, eventually their, uh, their culture grew and began to influence the Israelites, and that's the story of the whole book of Judges, so that by the time you get to the end of the book of Judges, the Israelites are living just like the Canaanites live. You can't tell the difference, and that's what happens with so many believers who fail in the process of spiritual growth because of compromise, that by the time they, they come to the end of their life, they have regressed, and perhaps they don't think or act any differently from the uh, pagans around them. So the key tools that we need to develop are the tools of confession on a regular basis, but that doesn't do anything other than get us back to a position where we can exploit the Word of God and apply it. We need to learn doctrine, and we really need to be involved in some self-examination at times, not some sort of maudlin, emotional, subjective, uh, naval contemplation, but really thinking about the ways in which we uh, need to be a little more uh, consistent in our application of God's, uh, God's word. But we have to recognize that the root of all sin is arrogance. And arrogance involves not only self-absorption, but self-justification. We're justifying why we're the way we are. And we've been justifying it for so long, we no longer really see what is there. Some of you have heard me teach in the past. I have a little fun doctrine I developed called the Doctrine of the Vampire Christian. Every church has a vampire Christian. We don't right now. Uh, I don't know that we have had, but I, I developed this through personal experience with a number of vampire Christians. You know, a vampire 
um, is, is someone who is alive and now they're dead. Uh, just like a Christian is someone who is regenerate, but now they're in carnal death. Uh, a, a vampire is someone who lives off of somebody else. They're, they're always just sort of sucking their nourishment out of somebody else. And there are certain Christians who are that way, and they just... They just love to feed off of other Christians, and they're, they're so self-absorbed. They've always got this problem, that problem, looking for other Christians to come along and take care of them. Uh, vampires cannot see them, their own reflection in a mirror, and a vampire Christian doesn't ever see his own reflection in the Word of God. I, you can sit there. I, I, I've been at times I have known when I had one individual in mind who was uh, had come back to church, and just because of what I was teaching that morning, it all related to him, and I just made it about as personal as I could make it without letting everybody else know what was going on, and he never had any idea that any of it applied to him. And that's what arrogance is. It is just blinding in self-deception. We just, we just don't want to admit that's really us. That's somebody else, and it applies to somebody else. So we always have to be on guard against arrogance. And that's what happened uh, to Amaziah. He was not on, on guard to arrogance. He began well, but it didn't last long. He began well. He executed his father's murderers, and he did it in a way that honored the, the word. He didn't kill their families. He didn't kill their children. He just killed those who were involved in the conspiracy and the assassination because he knew Deuteronomy 24.16 prohibited uh, fathers being put to death for their sons or sons being put to death uh, for their uh, for their fathers, but as he continued to reign, he decided to expand the territory of the southern kingdom, and so he decided to fight the Edomites. He raised an army of three hundred thousand from Judah and Benjamin, uh, and then he decided he really needed a little more, so he hired a hundred thousand mercenaries from the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, remember, God is at war against the northern kingdom of Israel and has them under discipline at this time. And so God sent a prophet to Amaziah to warn him to release those 100,000 soldiers. You're not going to go to victory and get your victory because you've brought in a bunch of, uh, and you've compromised with a bunch of uh, pagan, rebellious believers from the north. And there's a principle there, and that is, uh, that when we make sinful decisions and then we reverse course, there's often still consequences to pay. Uh, there were a couple of different consequences that he had to pay. Uh, one, he thought, he thought that one of them was financial. He, pay, he had paid them 100 talents of silver, which is equivalent to three tons of silver, about $1.2 million uh, based on uh, current price of silver. And he was worried about getting it back. And so God sent a prophet to him. I think this is a great passage with a great doctrine here. Uh, Amaziah said to the man of God, but, but what shall we do about the hundred talents which I have given to the troops of Israel? See, he's not concerned about the spiritual issue. He's just concerned about the money. But the man of God answered him and said, the Lord is able to give you much more than that. Now, don't worry about the fact that if you... If you have to get right with the Lord and start moving down a path of obedience, don't worry about what it's going to cost you or other secondary issues related to the details of life. God can easily uh, take care of that. But what happened is what will happen often when we try to straighten things out in our life is we've been involved in sin. There's still some consequences, and there were consequences for those Israelites got 
mad and angry, and as they headed back north, they began to raid the border villages between Judah and Israel, and they killed 3,000 in those villages. Now, that really sets up things for later on, but before we get there, uh, God blessed uh, Amaziah here. He had victory over the Edomites. He killed 10,000 Edomites in the Valley of the Salt, which is in the area of the Dead Sea, and he took Selah by war and called its name Jokteel to this day. Now, this is a look at the territory along the uh, Salt Sea, the Dead Sea there. It's pretty barren. Uh, this is a map showing you the general area where this battle took place. We're not sure exactly about the location of those uh, areas, Sela or Jokteel. Some believe that's Petra. Others believe it's other areas near there, but we're not uh, precisely sure. But this victory that God gave Amaziah uh, led him to think it was his victory, not God's victory. And so he's, the arrogance that has been there now begins to expand. And so he decides that uh, he, can, he can win. And so he's going to challenge the northern kingdom. He's going to get vengeance now for those uh, mercenaries that had killed the 3,000 uh, Judahites along the border. And so he calls out uh, Jehoash, the king in the north, uh, to battle. And Joash tries to warn him off. But he doesn't listen, and so in arrogance he goes to battle with uh, Jehoash at a place called uh, Beth Shemesh, which is about uh, 20 miles or so southwest of Jerusalem. And there he is defeated, and Jehoash exploits that victory, captures Jerusalem, and then he goes into the uh, goes into the temple. And he takes all of the gold and all that is valuable there and takes it up north and takes Amaziah uh, captive. Eventually, he did release him. And when Amaziah went back to the south, uh, the, those in Judah were very uh, angry with him. And if you read down in verses uh, 19 and 20, you read that they formed a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem. He fled to Lachish, which is uh, further south down towards uh, Beersheba. And they followed him there, and they killed him there. But they didn't just leave him there. They did honor him to some degree, and they brought him back uh, on a funeral cortege and brought him back to Jerusalem where he was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Now, the next king was a king called Azariah, also known as Uzziah. He's the 10th king of Judah, and he was 16 when he succeeded his father. Actually, there's a a period there where there is a overlap, a co-regency, because his father had been captured and taken into uh, Israel. And uh, he became the king, fully the king, when Amaziah was assassinated after his uh, 29-year reign. And Uzziah also started off well. But again, you have the same basic problem. He follows uh, in the footsteps of uh, of his um, uh, of his father, but he doesn't fully do away with all of the high places and all of the other um, uh, all of the other things, the worship of the high places and idols, and and uh, they they're not removed. In chapter uh, fifteen four, we read that he did what was right. Uh, 15.3, we did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done, except that the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Notice again that there's this 
this compromise, but the people's heart is not with the Lord. Now, Azariah also has the same problem of arrogance. We're not told very much about it in 2 Kings chapter 15, but we are in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. One day he became, in his arrogance, he was going to go in and he was going to offer incense uh, before the Lord. And so we're told in 2 Chronicles 26.16, but when he was strong, his heart was lifted up. See, as he had victory, he took credit for it himself rather than God. And so in arrogance, he decided he would go into the temple to burn incense on the altar of incense. But he was opposed by Azariah, the high priest. And they had 80 priests that stood there. This must have been quite a confrontation as these 80 priests stood there uh, in the Holy of Holies to oppose him. Or maybe they were outside of the holy place to oppose him, to prevent him from uh, coming in. And as they had this challenge, God brought judgment upon them because Uzziah refused to follow the law. And in verse 19 we read, Then Uzziah became furious, and he had a censer that was the uh, brass instrument to carry the coals. He had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And while he was angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord and beside the incense altar. And so this was God's judgment on Uzziah for the rest of the life. He had to live in isolation. He had to live in a house separated from everybody else because of his, uh, because of the leprosy. And so he was then succeeded by his son Jotham. Now Jotham is better than those that have uh, come before. Jotham is more obedient and God blessed him in, in many ways. He reigned for uh, 16 years, uh, came to the throne when he was 52, but he, and he is blessed by God. He expands the military. He strengthens the defenses, but he still has that same area of compromise. In Second uh, Kings 15:35, we read, however, the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Uh, and then it goes on to describe his construction projects. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. And he, Second Chronicles uh, in chapter 25, describes uh, further expansion. And the conclusion is given of his reign in Second Chronicles 27.6. So Jotham became mighty because he prepared his ways before the Lord his God. So he is consistently humble before the Lord, but there is still an incompleteness in his obedience. He did not remove the high places and the altars to the various idols that were there. And now all of that compromise has really hurt, you might say, but now it comes home with a vengeance in his son. And his son is Ahaz. His son is Ahaz. Ahaz is the twelfth king of Judah. Uh, His dates were 735 to 715. He became... Uh, the king at age 20, and he had a 16-year reign, and he is the most evil king in the north. And he doesn't just allow the high places to continue, but he completely follows after the idolatry, the false religion of the north. And in 2 Kings 16, verses 3 and 4, we read that he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Indeed, he made his son pass through the fire according to the abominations of the nations, whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of the Israel. So he's just as pagan as the Canaanites. 
he is going back to all of their nature religions and all of their primitive religions, including uh, infant sacrifice and human sacrifice. It is the worship of their, the god Moloch, where children would be taken and would be sacrificed, burned alive. And this happened with thousands upon thousands of children. And so in Second Kings 16.4 we read, He sacrificed and burned uh, incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. See, the idea of the green tree there was this was alive, it was uh, fruitful, and so this was d- done hopefully to motivate the gods to make Israel prosperous. But just the opposite happened. God brought discipline upon the nation, and they were defeated uh, by the uh, Assyrians, and the north was defeated by the Assyrians, and he was... Uh, humiliated and humbled by the Assyrians so that the in the southern kingdom they had to pay tribute uh, to the north. And this is what we read in Second Chronicles 28, 22 and following. Uh, now in the time of his distress, King Ahaz became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. This is that King Ahaz. I thought that's an interesting way of, uh, that they emphasize that uh, within the text. For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, which had defeated him, saying, Because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. Now what had happened here, the background for this, is he had defeated the Syrians, but he was so impressed with their gods and with their this huge altar they had in Damascus that he took the measurements of it and, and had... Uh, diagrams of it made so that they could build a pagan altar like that to put into the uh, courtyard of the temple in Jerusalem and to take the uh, the uh, bronze altar there out in the foreground and to remove that uh, back to the back and so that there would be continual sacrifices on this pagan altar in the courtyard of the temple. And that is what he did. So he begins to paganize the temple of God and bringing uh, this false worship right into the temple of God. And so then he begins to uh, com- completely uh, tear the temple apart, removing everything of value because he had to pay his tribute to to the, the Assyrians. And we're told about this in Second Chronicles uh, 28.4, that Ahaz gathered the articles of the house of God, uh, cut in pieces the articles of the house of God, and shut up the doors of the house of the Lord, and made for himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. And so it is that unwillingness in arrogance, that unwillingness to deal with sin in terms of obedience, that it is that sin that so easily besets us that comes back to destroy us spiritually and to wipe us out. But there's always hope. Going back to our introductory verse in James 4, 6, and in James 4, 10. James 4, 6 warns about the threat of arrogance. God resists. God is opposed to the proud, the arrogant, but he gives grace to the humble. And therefore, James 4, 10 says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. The only path to power, prosperity, and success is by 
being under the humbled under the hand of God, trusting in him, being obedient to him, recognizing that he is the authority in our life. And that begins at the cross. That is where we start in terms of humility, trusting in Jesus Christ as our Savior, recognizing that there's nothing that we bring to God that impresses God. No matter how moral we might be, no matter how good we might be, it is all, as the Scripture says, wood, hay, and straw. It has no eternal value because it is done in the energy and the power of our own sin nature. It is only when we humble ourselves and recognize that we do nothing to impress God. We do nothing of value for him. It is Jesus Christ who did it all at the cross. And when we trust in Christ, his righteousness, his perfect righteousness is credited to us so that God then looks at us not on the basis of what we've done, but what Christ did and who Christ is, and he declares us righteous on that basis. And that is our hope. When we humble ourselves and simply trust in Christ, in Christ alone we have salvation. And then as we go through spiritual life, we have to keep the goal in front of us. We have to keep the mission in front of us, which is to grow to the fullest extent that we can, not to compromise, not to settle for just being a a first-grade level Christian or a second-grade level Christian, but we want to exploit the grace of God all the way to, to the end of our lives so that we can become as mature believers as we can because only in that do we glorify God. And we can only do that when we have a no-compromise mentality with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be challenged by your word with the dangers of arrogance. And arrogance lurks in all of our hearts because that is the basic orientation of the sin nature, to exalt self rather than to exalt you. Father, we pray that you would help us be honest with who we are, honest to ourselves about uh, the arrogance in our own lives, the sins that so easily beset us and, and bring the threat of self-destruction because of, uh, because of disobedience, uh, bring the threat of judgment, discipline from you because of our disobedience, that we might humble ourselves recognizing that the mission is to take every thought captive for Christ. The mission is to uh, put to death the deeds of the flesh. The mission is to be transformed by the renewing of the mind. The mission is to walk by means of the Spirit and in the light of your word. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Trust, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Scripture says you will be saved. Salvation is simple. The work has already been done. Jesus Christ paid the penalty in full so that right now, right where you sit, all you need to do is simply trust in him, to believe the promise that if you believe in him, you have eternal life. Father, we pray that you would challenge the rest of us with the truth of your word, recognizing that, that salvation is only the beginning. It is the new birth, but then growth must come afterwards, and growth comes only through the spirit and the word and humbling ourselves in your sight. So, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we study today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.